0: one
1: Basic Hip
2: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode four hundred and sixty six for october fifteenth, twenty eighteen. Today's guest is Stefan Harris. His newest album is Sonic Creed. Here's how it opens. Very excited to welcome uh, my guest, vibraphonist, uh, educator, composer Stefan Harris to the show this morning. Thanks so much for being here, man. Oh,
1: thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me.
2: So this morning I looked through the archives of the show, uh, which is closing in on 500 episodes, and I because I wanted to see when the last time you were on was. And I realized, to my horror, that you have never been on this program before. And I don't know how in 11 years that is possible. I even lived in Albany for a long time. I I mean, it's not like I didn't know who you were. I've played your music a million times on the radio. So first of all, my abject apology. I don't know how I've not interviewed you before, but I'm so glad we're rectifying that now. Uh, And especially with this incredible album, Sonic Creed, um, which has just come out. Uh, And I wanted to, I guess, start by asking... In a lot of the writing about it, both uh, the press materials for it, but also other people's reviews of it, people are, including the press materials, I guess, describing kind of a through line for the album, calling it kind of a snapshot of African-American life around the turn of the 21st century. And so I guess I wanted to ask you about that and ask how how you're using, for the most part, wordless music to express a concept like that.
1: Well, for me, it, it harkens back to the role of art in our society. There's an inevitable uh, element to creating uh, where whatever comes out of you, no matter what you try to do, it's in some way going to be a reflection of who you are. It's going to be a reflection of your ambitions, of your, your intention, and how you want to move through the world. So... In general, whatever it is that I'm, I'm making, I, I try to be as vulnerable and as authentic as possible and make sure that I'm expressing what's on my heart and on my mind, which is part of the reason that I actually don't make a lot of records. I'm not interested in producing a record every year. I basically uh, make a record when I feel like there's something that I really need to say and I need to get it off of my chest. There's music that's inside of me that's just burning to to get out and for me one of the best ways to express myself is through my music. Um, So when I look at the big picture of how I view the role of art essentially, particularly artists, I think our role is, this, we're, we're essentially Sonic Griots. We're supposed to be telling the stories of our communities. Just like the a, a politician, a cook, a janitor, everyone has to be of service to society. And I think our role is to tell the story of what's happening now so that future generations have some insight into how we spent our time on the planet. And if they understand that, they understand something about what brought them to the point that they're at 500 years from now, whatever. It's the same reason we look back to history to gain a more comprehensive understanding of who we are. So. When, when you It's a big statement, right? And that some of the people are writing about the turn of the century, and but I'm a, I'm a child of the turn of the century, right? So it's, it's a reflection of all the music that I grew up listening. My mother's a, a Pentecostal minister, so you hear elements of, of the black church present in my music. I have an undergraduate deg- degree in classical music. You'll hear elements with regard to form and a lot of the nuances uh, that I bring from my experience in classical music. And then when you look at the influences of all the other musicians on the album, you also notice their cultural presence, and it makes a much more holistic picture of what's actually happening in the world right now.
2: So what was it that you felt you really needed to say?
1: Well, honestly, I just I feel like we're living in pretty cynical times right now, and when I look at the way that African Americans are being depicted in many regards, uh, and some of the challenges that we're facing right now, I just felt like it was important for me to stand up and make a statement about how I see who we are and our experiences and I think that I've, I've had tremendous experiences from learning from master musicians like Buster Williams and Joe Henderson and Max Roach, some of the most brilliant, intelligent, kind, empathetic human beings I've ever met. So I have this, this purview of black excellence that I was always a part of. And so I wanted to make a statement in art right now, putting it out there that this is a significant part of who we are as a people. Not that other things, I mean, we're all, none of us are a monolith and we all have challenges, but this is an important part of what keeps us moving forward and a reflection of our journey in the United States. So for me, I needed to make that statement. And again, the best way for me to express something like that is actually in my art.
2: This album opens with uh, the Bobby Timmons tune that there, which um, later had lyrics set to it that are kind of very childlike and full of wonder. And you, please stop me from ascribing meaning that isn't there. But that seemed to me to be a beautiful way to begin an album like this. It's almost like a, almost like a cleaning of the slate. Like let's let's take a fresh look. At what there is, and uh, again, you tell me if that's a million miles off. But I just when I when I first listened to this record without having read any of the song titles or knowing what was coming up, I just started it playing, and when I heard that, I thought, oh, this is kind of a, it feels like a palate cleanser for my brain or something. When I when I heard it,
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's part of. Um uh... my concept for making blackout records that every record starts with something that's kind of a classic piece of uh... repertoire that's being played around new york and chicago young musicians are playing these tunes so we take something that's an iconic piece of music and we put a blackout spin on it so if you listen to the first record uh... which is called evolution that started with a uh, it's a don Gronik tune called nothing personal In New York, everybody was playing that tune at Jam Sessions, and they were sort of playing it the same way. So we took it and completely put our own spin on it. And then the second blackout record, which is called Urbanus, it starts with Gone, uh, which is from the, uh, Poor Game Best, the Miles Davis record. And because Mark Carey, our keyboardist, is from DC, he grew up playing go go music, we ended up putting a go go rhythm to it and just completely doing it in our own way. So this record starts with the same sort of tribute. So it's, it's funny, it's not about the lyrics. For me, it's actually about Art Blakey and his influence. Um, I'm I'm deeply embedded in the world of education at this point. It's it's really at the center of my life passion, and uh, I'm 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 actually running the jazz program at Manhattan School of Music. And I remember being on a panel uh, maybe a year or two ago, and hearing people talk about the founding fathers of jazz education, and people like Art Blakey and Barry Harris. None of these people were mentioned, (laughs) and I was thinking this is crazy. If you if you take a look at Art Blakey and you look at his sphere of influence. It's Wayne Shorter. It's, I mean, it's I mean, it's Horace Silver. In fact, when you look at the rest of the record, half of the people who wrote the songs on this record came through Art Blakey. So part of my ambition is to amplify the narrative around how this music is passed down from generation to generation so that we can then have a conversation about how it should be taught in an institution. in a a manner that is a reflection of the culture of the music. In many ways, the music was brought into the institution when they started jazz education programs, but the culture wasn't brought in. So there's this whole heavy emphasis on music theory and scales, but the real core purpose and emotional expression behind the art form hasn't really been we haven't figured out how to teach that on an institutional level and i look at people at as, as like art blakey and barry harris as icons and people that we should be learning from
2: An interesting flipping of the script because, uh, you know, two you and I are about the same age, and two generations before us, if you had had to explain to someone that jazz will be such an institutionalized art form that people will forget that that's not how it began, they would have looked at you like you were insane <laughs> since there was no literally nowhere to study this music in an institutional setting back then. And now we've come to the point where we have to remind people that this did not begin in a classroom,
1: that's right, and and it's uh. I mean, it's fantastic that it's in institutions. We need one another, right? And, but part of the challenge I think we face as a field is a reflection of the institutionalization of the art form. So I think people come to art they because they want to see a bit of themselves reflected in the art that they consume. Right, so I mean, I remember seeing you said we were about the same age, so you probably saw the game with Michael Jordan back in the day when he when he had the flu. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, this guy's like passing out on the sideline, but he just mustered the strength to get back up, and he scored whatever thirty something points in a in a quarter. Like I remember seeing that and just dreaming and really pushing myself to have that kind of drive, and no matter what happened, and so I look at. I look at what we do in the same way. We're supposed to be vulnerable. We're supposed to be courageous. We're supposed to be flawed and and be willing to get on stage, make mistakes, and then find a way to connect with one another. We're supposed to get on stage and be the living example of how people who, who can't have completely disparate ideas can come together to create something of beauty. And so when I look at that, I know that that's not always taught on an institutional level because those are the cultural competencies associated with the art form. It's usually theory driven. So if you are leading with a notion of empathy at the heart of what we do and that we're offering something to society that's a blueprint for how we can really flourish as a democracy and learn to communicate with one another and amplify all elements of who we are as a people so that we get the most broad picture of who we are if we're leading with that more people are going to relate to what it is that we're doing If we're graduating generations of people who are leading with music theory tricks the tritone substitutions the average person doesn't care anything about that the average person knows love they know fear they know compassion they know greed and jealousy (laughs) right so if if we're putting that into our art I think it's gonna be it'll be much easier for people to see themselves reflected in what it is that we do and we'll have a much more pertinent place in our sonic landscape
2: Which. It's beautiful to hear you say that. It also strikes me as... I was going to use the word antithetical. I'm not sure ethic antithetical is too strong. It strikes me as a difficult proposition in an academic landscape where um, I think maybe in the sciences it's different, but in... I don't think we, generally speaking, teach people that making mistakes is okay. And like, I went through a conservatory program, and and it, you know, it was it was fiercely competitive. And the idea that a big part of your education would be screwing things up to figure out how to do it better or how to incorporate spontaneous uh, happenstance into your music, it was just not stressed. Not only was it not stressed, I would say it was it was downplayed, maybe. And so it seems like. I I'm super excited to hear you say what you've said. I just kind of wonder how it how it manifests in practice.
1: Well, um it it comes down to our philosophy about the students who are entering the building. So many programs operate under the empty vessel theory, meaning students are coming to them, they're young, they're an empty vessel you're supposed to fill their heads with information. I actually don't buy into that theory. I think when people come to us, they're coming to us with certainly 18 years of life experience from various communities. And we have students from all over the world who speak multiple languages, who have completely different perspectives on life. So I feel my job as an educator is to simply give students the tools that they need to tell their individual stories. That's it. It's not about jazz or any style of music. It's not my job to tell someone they're supposed to play this way. I give them tools and then the other part of what I'm supposed to do as an educator is I'm supposed to put them in difficult situations and let them fight their way out so that they understand how to utilize those tools that we're giving them. So in the end, what success looks like for me as an educator is when we're graduating generations of students, they're going out and they're becoming the soundtrack to what's happening in the world. Like, what is the sound of the Black Lives Matter movement? (laughs) You know, like, what is the sound of the political strife that we're experiencing right now, the divide? Like, who's making music that is a reflection of that, as opposed to, I've learned, bebop scales and i'm going to come out and i'm going to do confirmation in all 12 keys which is i mean it's just nothing wrong with that i suppose but it (laughs) it doesn't feel as culturally relevant to what's happening right now in the world
2: (laughs) very diplomatically said (laughs) that's Uh, well, I want to uh, I want to descend from the from the clouds for a moment. And uh, you mentioned Blackout a couple times, and I don't want to go any further without actually saying some names and uh, telling people who's in this really fabulous band. Uh, so will you will you tell folks uh, who comprises Blackout?
1: Oh, absolutely. So on on the uh, Sonic Creed album, uh, we have James Francis on piano, who's a fantastic young pianist, just signed to Blue Note. Uh, and I think he's going to have a release coming out soon. Uh, Josh Crumbly is playing bass, and then the long-term standing member with me has been Casey Benjamin on alto saxophone and vocoder, and my brother, Terry on Gully, who I've been playing with for over 20 years now. And then we have... Uh... Uh, Lots of other musicians who helped uh, build out the sound of the album, Mike Moreno and Gene Baylor, who just created an unbelievably beautiful, warm palette of voice uh, on many of the arrangements. Regina Carter's on the album, Pedrito Martinez. So it's really uh, uh, a coming together of, I think, brilliant minds who are all extremely creative and willing to give the best of themselves.
2: Now this album uh, ends with a track which introduced me to a musician I was unfamiliar with. Quite possible every other person listening to this knows who he is, I certainly have holes in my knowledge, but that's Joseph Doubleday who plays Marimba uh, on the very final track in a in a duet with you, which first of all is just heartbreakingly beautiful. It's it's amazing, Thank I've you. listened to it so many times, and I don't know anything about Joseph Doubleday, so will you say a word about him for my own edification? <laughs>
1: it's 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 I mean it's making art is so amazing. It's I'm I love the processes it cleanses me and it's like a gut check. It's a it's a moment of truth. Are you living up to your values that you're putting out there in the world? So when you when you start with Art Blakey and I have a great deal of admiration for people like Art Blakey who pass the music down, I find it to be my responsibility to do the same. So there are several young musicians that I've mentored over the years and have included them in concerts and so Joe Doubleday is someone that I met when he was in high school and I've been mentoring him all through college and he's an incredibly gifted musician Um, so this is an example of you got to bring that next generation into the fold and help give them exposure and and also they bring something to the table that challenges me to grow as well
2: Back to the episode in just a minute. First, let me remind you about supporting the show via Patreon. Go to patreon.com/slash the jazz session. That's patreo dot com slash the jazz session. For five bucks a month, you get a bonus episode each month. Somebody talks about an album they like and why they like it, what it means to them. That's for five bucks a month. If we reach a hundred subscribers, I'll make three episodes of the main show a month. And if we reach two hundred subscribers, the jazz session will come out weekly. So remember go to patreon.com slash the jazz session, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the jazz session, and thanks to Kevin, our latest member. Now, back to the show. Also wanted in particular, uh, and you you just mentioned Gene Baylor, but I asked wanted to ask you to say something about Gene Baylor, um, who I had heard of before, but whose music I haven't heard a ton of, and who just contributes so much uh, to this record.
1: Yeah, it's like <laughs> when I when I think about uh, the term jazz. I mean, it's sort of a term that was used to commodify. Uh, the music of a culture so it could be sold, right? That's nothing against the term. I'm, I'm kind of ambiguous about uh, the commodification with regard to the term itself. But when I step back from that term and I think about what it is that I'm trying to put out into the world, I'm celebrating my culture, which is black culture. It's African-American culture. It's so much bigger than jazz. And jazz is just one element of it. So an artist like Gene Baylor, And the Baylor Project, I absolutely love that record because it is exactly what I'm talking about. You hear all the elements of jazz, but you also hear gospel, soul music, R&B. It's all present avant-garde the the entirety of our experience in this country is reflected in the music that's created so i am a huge fan of jean Baylor and wanted her to be a part of this and it was one of those situations where i just completely stepped back and got out of the way right so for example on the track now Uh, I picked the song. It's a beautiful melody. It's a tribute to one of my mentors, the great Bobby Hutcherson. Uh, We we had the lyrics and everything, and then we got in the studio, and at one moment, Gene said, Hey, Stefan, do you mind if I try something? I'm like, "Uh, You're Gene Baylor. Absolutely. Everybody leave the studio. Gene goes up in the booth. It's just me, Tarion, because Tarion co-produced, and the engineer. She goes up in the booth, and she starts figuring out voices to layer. And she ended up layering 16 background parts to create the chorus, but it was on the spot, just listening to the previous track, trying different notes. And she created that whole arrangement on the spot, probably within a half an hour. from a culture where we've been marginalized in many regards we don't have lots of resources and uh, uh there's a there's negative to that but then there's some positive things that come out of it and one ironically I'm optimistic of course one of the positive outcomes is i think part of our culture is we figure out how to get things done Right. Like when you look at the birth of of hip hop music, it was like you took instruments out of the schools and we didn't have access access to it. So one of the first things I remember doing is doing beats on the side of the car. My brother could rap. Right. We started to make our own instruments. So there's this element of being empathetic to what's happening in the moment, to the possibilities, and having the courage and vulnerability to try to go after it. So that whole process of the way we made the record is, I think, also a reflection of our culture. Well, that's amazing.
2: (laughs) Hearing that that's how that incredible performance came about is a little jaw-dropping, I have to admit. Uh, Wow, okay, so uh, now I'll recover from that and um, ask about uh, Terry and Gully. I think it's, because the instrument that you play uh, is also melodic in nature, I think it can be easy to overlook the fact that it is a percussion instrument. And it always has struck me that uh, Terry and Gully is particularly skilled at playing with vibraphonists and at knowing how those two kind of percussion uh, sound worlds mesh together. He just seems incredibly, incredibly skilled at it. Uh, and it's very completely unrelated to this interview. I've been listening to him a lot uh, recently in other contexts as well. But on this album, again, it's just it just really shines through just how damn good he is at yeah. figuring out where to be and when to be there and all that stuff. So maybe if you could say a word about that and that relationship.
1: Oh, Terry and I love Terry from the bottom of my heart. I mean, it's sometimes it's just no practice necessary there's no rehearsal necessary you just have artistic soulmates, and after the first 30 seconds on stage whatever 20 years ago i knew that tarion and i had a chemistry that was just going to unfold decade after decade i always tell people he's on every one of my records except the first two but that was because i didn't know him <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, he's just brilliant. And, and you know, it's, it's not so much about the vibraphone. It's really that when you look at the cultural origins of this art form, it's an art form that was born out of a people who were marginalized and didn't have the opportunity to tell their authentic story. Right? So it's like if you were back in in the days of enslavement, if you expressed your intelligence, your ability to read, your love for another person, they would separate you. You would get lynched. or You know, I mean, it, you weren't allowed to tell the truth. There was an image that was being put on you. The one time during the week that you could get that truth out and express yourself authentically would have been on Sunday in church when you were alone in your community. So the, the need for the music was born out of that, the need for people to tell their authentic stories. So you, someone would stand up, and in that moment, they would sing their pain, and they would sing their joy. They would sing their brilliance, and the community around them, the congregation, would support them. They would sit down. Then the next person would stand up and tell their truth. So if you imagine that you cannot be authentic in your life, and you get this one hour or whatever it is, during the week to tell the truth, you absolutely wouldn't copy anyone else. It's the one time for you to tell your story. And that's what I hear in Terry on Gully and Gene Baylor. I hear complete individuals, people who understand the purpose of the art form. That's what I hear when I hear John Coltrane and, and Duke Ellington and Miles Davis, complete individuals individuals who are expressing themselves because they know that this is probably one of the best ways for them to do it in many regards depending on the era that you you live it may have been one of the only outlets for you to tell your truth as an african-american so tarion is incredibly authentic and articulate as an individual which makes it really easy for me to connect with him, because I understand the language that he's speaking. It's totally different than the way that I speak. But because it's so clear, it's easy for me to have a conversation with him and connect with him.
2: Because of the nature of your education job, you have probably more of a chance than many people to speak your mind to other people. But I wonder if music still provides an outlet that that just doesn't provide.
1: Well, that's a great question. You know because I, i'm I'm not obsessed with making lots of music I mean I absolutely love the science of music I, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning trying to figure out how these vibrations relate to one another every single day <laughs> but the the process of going into the studio and making an album it's one outlet for me I always uh, yeah I have these notebooks thousands of pages of notes some most of it's music but then there are a lot of pages where I'm just writing my thoughts and I remember many years ago I had this epiphany and I wrote it down in my notebook and I basically said I am not a musician I have a gift which happens to manifest itself well in music and that statement changed my life because it gave me permission to dream off of the bandstand so my primary motivation in life is centered around helping people understand the value and importance of empathy So I do that through the music that I'm making. I think it's a a live demonstration of how we come together, how we listen to one another. I also do that in my teaching. I'm giving people the skills that they need to learn how to connect with others. I'm also an app developer, so I'm building apps that uh, help people train their ability to connect with others. These are tools that I'm building. I also do corporate presentations, <laughs> where I talk about management techniques and team dynamics. And I'll use music as an analogy. But it's all centered around this notion of empathy. So music is a part of that bigger picture. And it's, it's a beautiful part of it. It's one of the most uh, vulnerable parts of all of my outlets for expression, because you can't control it. right? You You can't control what's going to happen. When you're giving a talk, you have talking points. You flex, of course, but you're sort of in control of where it's going to go at that moment. When you get on stage and you're improvising, it's completely related to the weather. (laughs) It's related to the temperature. It's related to if you just got off an 18-hour flight and you're tired. It's related to how the audience is feeling. So it's one of the few moments in life where... I don't have time to think about the future. I don't have time to think about the past. I'm completely immersed in the now, and that's a powerfully spiritual place to get to that I, for the most part, I don't know if I've been able to get there outside of music.
2: You've used a lot of words in this interview that I associate with spiritual practice. Um, I'm a Buddhist, for example. And so if you're an American Buddhist, you're always going to hear compassion and intention and empathy and those kinds of words. Those are kind of the hallmarks of talking about that practice. And you just perfectly anticipated that at the end of that sentence. But I wonder, do you have a spiritual practice of some kind besides music? Obviously, music is one.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I am don't belong to any particular religion, but I've, I've studied lots of different religions i'm absolutely influenced by buddhism i mean it's what a what a beautiful uh, approach to maneuvering through the world and a beautiful approach to creating influence in the world so and when i look at our art form there's such a clear connection to the philosophy of what's associated with buddhism and the philosophy of how jazz actually operates. In many ways, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, these are jazz, improvised music is like a manifestation of those principles that I was reading about and learning about uh, in Buddhism. You know, I, I played for many years with, and I still do, with Buster Williams, who is an iconic uh, Buddhist and was one of the people who turned Herbie Hancock onto Buddhism and Wayne Shorter and many other people. Uh, so I've I've been in the presence of a real spiritual giant for many years, and I'm sure that that's been a big part of uh, my influence as a musician and as a man.
2: His name has come up, but I was hoping to get some more of your thoughts on Bobby Hutcherson.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh, wow, Bobby Hutcherson. Man.
2: I mean, I feel like we could do a whole other show that is just <laughs> Stefan <laughs> Harris on Bobby Hutcherson. But
1: <laughs> yeah, and and the thing about it is, it's it's funny. Like I look at these instruments, and they're just a bunch of metal and wood. They're just tools. Like, We we, we can't we don't obsess about the hammer when the carpenter builds a beautiful home. Right? Yeah. It's just a tool. So when I think about Bobby Hutchison, it's so ironic. I, I don't think about the vibraphone at all. I think about his brilliance. I think about how curious he was for his entire life. We have brilliant musicians throughout the history of this art form, but I can tell you, you can only count on two hands, and you may not even need two the the number of musicians who were able to grow throughout their entire time on the planet most great musicians come into their own at a young age they 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 gather their sound and then they basically execute on that sound for the the, the rest of their time on the planet and they make beautiful music bobby hutcherson was absolutely curious and hungry, an intellectual genius. And if you listen from record to record, you're hearing growth. You're hearing new vocabulary. You're hearing new ideas. I think of people like Duke Ellington as a classic example of that. There are very few. Someone like Miles Davis is an interesting case, too, right, because he grew up throughout his entire life. But when you listen to once Miles hit his stride with regard to his vocabulary on the trumpet, he actually held on to that. For the rest of his time, but he was so masterful as a leader, he kept changing the environment around his voice, which was a way for him to continue to innovate. So Bobby, for me, uh, just set the bar so high, and I learned that you should never get comfortable there's way too much to learn and i'll tell you uh my last conversation with bobby oh my goodness what a great example of what we're talking about here it was backstage at the sf jazz center and bobby hutcherson myself and david sanchez were in the dressing room and bobby Talk to us. It must have been 45 minutes. And his wife was standing by on the side, ready to go. Rosemary was ready to go. <laughs> he talked to, to us about, for about 45 minutes about the power of pentatonics. And he's been really dreaming and exploring like what happens, what does it do to, pe- to the audience when you're one step away? Like, how long can you live in that dissonant space? And can you sense where people are and right when they're about to fall apart, bring them back in? And can you delay that intensity long enough? I mean, this guy was like, you could tell he left that night and probably went home and started to dream and explore more and got up the next morning. And this is like, this is within the last few months of his life. So what What better message can you give to the next generation, David and myself and all the other musicians, about staying hungry and staying curious? I mean, it's, the other thing I'd say about what I love about having had the opportunity to be engaged in this art form from a cultural perspective is I literally have been able to be around geniuses. And not everyone can say that. I mean, literally, Joe Henderson, he was a genius, and Barry Harris, and I played with Max Roach. and I mean, it's an unbelievable experience. It completely changes your perspective on what's possible in your own life.
2: So as I mentioned before, uh, we're very close in age. We're actually six months apart in age, and I will just like to point out that I'm younger. So let's just make that very clear.
1: Uh, well, but... wait a minute. You know, in, in my and all the press about me when my when I, I don't know, my second or third record came out for at least three years, I was 23 years old. So my... <laughs> I might
2: be three fair, years younger than you. Fair point, fair point. All right, I'll concede, I'll concede. But um, so that means that uh, we essentially came up in the 80s and then were, you know, entering our adulthood in the early 90s. And I wonder now, uh, everything you just described, and, and I, I really hope this is my own myopic lens, but everything you just described feels to me like an era that is almost gone. And I wonder if the like the students that you're teaching now, are are they going to have access to the same, just the same kind of people that that you did because of when you grew up?
1: Oh, I understand that. Okay, I, I was I, when you said an era that's almost gone you're referring to the people i was thinking about the idea and i'm thinking no curiosity is not going no on.
2: no not the idea but yeah just i mean just the just the bobby hutchersons and the joe hendersons of the world i mean like these people who were foundational artists in this music
1: well i mean the thing is um it's funny i've had this conversation with a bunch of my friends you know, like we're all around that age where a bunch of my friends are starting to say, "Yeah, these young people, these young guys, they just don't understand." And I'm like, "Well, you're sounding like your grandfather." Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like every generation reaches a point. We reach a certain age, and you start to think that the the next generation just doesn't get it. I actually don't see it that way at all. And uh, so, on the one hand, we're we're losing many of our our icons like Bobby Hutcherson, uh, but Bobby took the time to spend with younger musicians and to pass that information down and we have such admiration and love for that for him and even beyond the love for him we have what Buster <laughs> talks about as actual proof. They talk about this in Buddhism. We've actually taken the principles that have been shared with us from Bobby and put it into action and have gotten positive results. So Although Bobby may not be with us, the, the message that were passed down to Bobby Hutchison, Dexter Gordon, and everyone else who came before him, it's that same beautiful message about our nature as a species, about how we're going to move forward that is being passed down from generation to generation. So it's it's in part, uh, I'm, I'm in that middle age now, right? I'm not a kid anymore. It's part of my job to do that. And, and people like Kenny Barron are with us and continue to pass down incredible information. So I'm very confident that that element of our nature will continue to thrive as long as we understand that in large part, that's our purpose as artists which is why we need to make sure that we're teaching the culture, not just teaching them, but our institutions are a reflection of the culture of the music.
2: Yeah, and I want to be clear that I was in no way saying the kids don't get it. I was just saying the kids won't have <laughs> access to a bunch of these, of these folks because they're dead. But you've you've answered that question about, well, then it's the job of the next generation to serve as the bridge to that
1: knowledge. That's so. right. And, and, yeah, and if you think about it, it's funny uh, – I've I, I've come across a lot of young musicians, and they and they say, "Man, in middle school, the first Blackout record—that was my—that was the one that turned me on to jazz." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so there's, it's interesting. Like we're in that age where we're starting to be the people that introduce the music to them as they're on-ramp, and then we take them deep into the history so that they understand the brilliance of Charles Mingus.
2: You can't others. tell me that's not a little terrifying <laughs> when a middle school kid comes up to you and says, hey, man, your record introduced me to jazz. I mean, you know.
1: <laughs> I, I I embrace exactly yes. where I am right now. Okay. I wouldn't want to go back i don't want to go forward
2: (laughs) indeed. well answered you know i will cast my vote for you when you run for office i just want to say it's 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 becoming clear to me now that i will have that chance to put the first vibraphonist in office and i'm looking forward to it so uh as people are listening to this uh it's coming out uh october 15th 2018 are there things that are coming up uh, that you want to mention in any any aspect of your life whether it's performance or teaching or or anything else
1: well, I mean, I'm actually going to be on the road, which is nice, <laughs> because I don't I don't tour a lot, because I'm involved in so many other things, but we'll be out with the band in St. Louis and Chicago and all over the, the U.S., um, so I'm looking forward to that, but also... Uh, One of the primary focuses in the background for me right now is uh, I'm working on a major update to my app, Harmony Cloud. So I'm deep in the world of designing algorithms for software, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like blowing my mind because it's making me so much better as an educator. It's helping me understand people so much more clearly and teaching me how to articulate ideas, which is funny because you generally don't think of software that way. But what I've learned is that software has no intuition. It doesn't really have intelligence. So if you create an algorithm and you tell the software to do something, it's going to do exactly that. So if you tell a musician here do this this and this there are all types of intuitive things that we may change without even realizing it so the task for me in designing software is to figure out well why wouldn't i do it that way and then i got to map out every possibility again this is thousands of pages of of research but once i go through that process and figure out every element of why i would intuitively do something else i figure it out and then when i'm teaching I can help explain it better to other people and help them understand how to move forward. And then they can use the tools that I'm creating uh, to increase their ability to understand music and hear what's happening around them. And so now that you've said
2: all that, I'll ask you the question that a good interviewer would have asked before that, which is tell me about the app. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no worries. So my, my my company's called the Melodic Progression Institute, and I have a business partner. His name is Cliff Swiggett. He was a part of Microsoft when it was very, very early. It was probably when it was 2,000 employees or something like that. So he's a brilliant software developer, and he actually is a fantastic trombonist also so he has that unique combination of understanding the world of coding but when i come up with algorithms in music he understands what it is that i'm saying to him and can translate it so it's the perfect balance in our partnership um we we met at a masterclass that i was giving and i was teaching music from uh the perspective of emotion and also from the physical characteristics when you hear a sound like literally we in our we're not conscious of it but some sounds make our stomachs hurt. <laughs> some sounds make us feel light on our feet. So I have a whole system of teaching that's centered around body awareness. And he was there and asked me about, well, what do you do next? Like, how does someone practice this? And I said, you know, well, you got to get together as a community. And I, you know, after a while, I said, that's not good enough as, a, as an educator to give that answer. We do need tools. So Cliff and I sat down and had lunch and it ended up being like a five-hour lunch. And we started to talk about Can you actually create tools to help people become more empathetic? And that's how the idea began. So our first app is Harmony Cloud, and it took several years, but we actually created an algorithm. It's fully patented at this point, which is awesome. (laughs) We created an algorithm that allows software to improvise chord progressions, which is really crazy, and it's really difficult to pull off. So imagine, If I'm working with a student, many times what I'll do is I'll say, you turn your back, and I'll just start playing chord progressions and challenge the student to figure out what's going on. Because, again, that's what happens many times on the bandstand. The first time I played with Buster Williams, he called a B-flat rhythm change. Never played a single B-flat. (laughs) It was Jerry Allen (laughs) on piano, Lenny White on drums. They went all over the place. I had no idea what was going on, and I had to learn to swim and listen to what was happening and be flexible. Um, So a lot of times I challenge students like that. You turn your back, I'm going to play some chords, and you're going to have to figure out what's going on by ear. So then... I asked myself, well, how do, you, how do they practice that? So I basically challenged myself to see if I can get software to improvise the way that I do at the piano. So now a student can take my app, Harmony Cloud, and they can say, well, I can't hear all of these chords. I'm going to start with three different chords, and I'm going to start improvising with this app and see if I can hear the difference between three. And then they can build up from there. Right now, the update of the app, which is coming in January, has 500 chords in it that they could build up to. So now they could get on the bandstand with someone they've never played with before, ideally, and be able to hear what's going on. No music. They can go to some tiny village in China somewhere where it's not even jazz, (laughs) completely unrelated to jazz, and be able to hear the relationships between the notes because they've basically put themselves in a position to understand the science of empathy. And I'll, I'll just add one other thing. As you can see, I'm very passionate about empathy, and this is exciting for me. <laughs> I had a fantastic moment from another brilliant Buddhist, uh, uh, Wayne Shorter. I got a chance to, to, to do a, a show, and it was Wayne and Herbie and these amazing musicians. So uh, uh, John Beasley asked me to do an arrangement. And this was the night before. So I put this arrangement together, and I show up at rehearsal the next day, and you know, I'm passing out charts to everyone, and I go over to Wayne and say, hey, Wayne, you know, John asked me to do an arrangement. Here's the part. And Wayne says, oh, oh no, I haven't read music in 17 years. So, you know, once my eyesight started to go a little bit i just you know i just stopped (laughs) i mean i couldn't (laughs) believe that like what does that actually mean i mean like all the music we've heard this guy create in the past 17 years has been completely by ear and sure enough we started the arrangement what he came up with was a thousand times better than the silly notes that i wrote on that part so there's this 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 way of seeing the world and understanding music from a sonic perspective, not a visual perspective, not an intellectual perspective, from a spiritual perspective, and then a sonic perspective that clearly Wayne Shorter has mastered and is a glowing example of the science of empathy.
2: So can you kind of take us on a tour uh, through the record, through the new album, Sonic Creed?
1: Absolutely, so we talked earlier about the first track, "Dad There," and it being a tribute to Art Blakey and his influence and his approach to passing the music down, uh, the second track is called "Chase and Kindle," which is a a song uh, that I wrote for my two sons. their middle names are Chase and Kindle. <laughs> And that really is about celebrating family. And I remember growing up and being in these backyard parties, and we'd have Donny Hathaway playing in these Temptations or or whatever it would be, these soulful, repeated bass lines that were so captivating. So I tried to sit and recapture that energy in the bass line that I created and put a soulful melody on top um let's take a trip to the sky is a it started as a poem that i wrote for my wife after one of our anniversaries and i i was on the road when i wrote the poem and i came home and sat at the piano and i literally went through the poem and tried to find chords that articulated the emotion of each of the words. So that's how that song came to be. And then Cape Verdean Blues is a tribute, obviously, to the, the great Horace Silver, who I met a bunch of times. He used to come out to see the band play when we would play in LA. Um, Go, of course, we just talked about Wayne Shorter. Uh, song of Samson is, is a indicative of another idea that I like to have when making records. I like to record songs of my peers of other living musicians who aren't necessarily on the album. So I've recorded some Buster Williams music over the years and music of younger musicians. And then, throw it away, I'm so excited about how that came to be. I'm a huge fan of Abby Linking and, and general vocalists. And in fact, I probably, I'm I can confidently tell you I learned how to phrase from listening to vocalists. Uh, that was my main influence in learning how to play jazz initially. Um, so I got to spend time with her and wanted to pay tribute to her. So we kind of had an arrangement that we were horsing around with, and it was late in the day in the studio. We were all tired, and we were thinking, yeah, maybe we'll try a take of this and see how it goes. And we started off, and it didn't really go that well. We said, ah, maybe we'll just do it tomorrow. Let's come back fresh. And Terry on says, wait a minute turn off all the lights. (laughs) So it goes completely pitch dark in the studio. All you can see is the red exit sign. We can't see each other. So we're like, well, what what do you want to do? And Terrence is like, I don't know, man. It doesn't matter. So forget the arrangement, let's just see what happens. And James happened to be playing the piano on the previous take. So the lights go out, and all of a sudden, James just switched to some keyboard sound that sounded like it was from outer space that none of us had ever heard before. And he wasn't playing Throw It Away. I had no idea where he was going to go. We didn't know if we were even going to play Throw It Away. So this is an example where there's a little space that, that was left where he was creating these chords and textures, and then I just had to use my ear and dance with him wherever he was and somehow we found our way into the tempo and very eventually casey just took the lead on the melody i'm sort of dancing around him but none of that was discussed and my favorite moment of of connectivity is how we end that track we literally end we stop on a dime no one's conducting it's completely dark in the studio but we're so connected as a community that we all sense that this was the moment to let go and to end the piece so i was just so thrilled and that was one of those moments that you 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 look for in music as much as possible where you finish the lights go on we all are completely laughing and we hug each other because we knew that we came together in a way that was ideal and really really special And now, of course, is a tribute to Bobby, who I love and is an icon for me. But, you know, part of the concept with this record and all my records is I want to pay tribute to our ancestors, to our direct influences. As you notice, all the people I'm talking about are people that I've met and have had life experiences with, with the exception of Art Blakey. Um, uh, But I think it's important to pay tribute to our elders in the way that they would be proud of us to pay tribute and that means doing it in our own way so i never just directly copy when you hear our version of now you should hear our version of what's happening in the world right now and then the last track uh gone too soon is uh my tribute to michael michael jackson first of all it is a phenomenal composition. It literally plays itself. You can just play the melody and the chords and the magic is there if you play it with authenticity and with some feeling. So I love the piece, but Michael Jackson is a really important figure uh, in my life, Uh for one, I was a huge fan of the Jackson Five, and just hearing that much soul come out of that little person. <laughs> but, but then there was there was that moment uh, growing up where there weren't very many people of color on television, and you would rush in the house if there was someone on television, so you could see yourself reflected in the in the art that we consume, as I mentioned earlier. And I just I just remember Thriller, and I remember that all of a sudden after that all types of african-american artists started to be included on mtv so he opened up a door and opened up possibilities for all of us that i was so inspired by and then when he passed away i just was really hurt uh... By a lot of the ways that he was treated in the media, and I felt it was important to pay tribute to him and the The other thing that 's important for me is when I look at his life aside from the controversy i 'm not thinking about any of that what i What I do see is a person who, despite all types of challenges that he faced i mean let 's not forget he 's an African American from gary Indiana, right so i 'm sure he went through some challenges in his time in the United States. This guy managed to muster the compassion to live his life dedicated to love, empathy, and helping other people despite everything else that was going on around him. And for me, I, I need that because it's challenging for me at times, right? I mean, I get angry and I get frustrated, but I need reminders and I need to see examples of people who are courageous enough to stay dedicated to love. So that's why I pay tribute to him.
2: My guest is Stefan Harris. The new album with his band Blackout is called Sonic Creed. What an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending some time with me.
1: Thank you, my friend. I hope all is well with you, and uh, I look forward to hanging with you again sometime.
2: show thanks to the respect sextet for the theme music dave rabel for the logo you can find the show on social media facebook.com slash the jazz session twitter at jazz sesh s-e-s-h also please rate and review the show on itunes it really does help and become a member for just five bucks a month at patreon.com slash the jazz session that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the jazz session New episodes come out on the 1st and the 15th, so I will see you next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.